Welcome to Cursed Objects, a podcast about cultural history, politics and tact, where every week we bring in an object that shows us something weird and complex about the world that we live in, sort of like a cursed show and tell. I'm historian Dr. Kasha T and I'm joined as ever by my co-host. Dan Hancocks. Hi, I'm a journalist and author. And we are incredibly lucky today um, to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, Les Back is a professor of sociology and has written on everything from music, sound system cultures to the sociology of water. A committed anti-racist and ivory tower dismantler. (laughs) (laughs) His lockdown lectures that can be found on SoundCloud reminded many of us of the joys of learning during quite a tough time. He is, above all else, a really lovely man, (laughs) and it's his generosity of spirit that makes him such such a rare find in academia. In his book, Academic Diary, which is also his Twitter handle, he once wrote, If a book really strikes a chord with me, I feel like I need to give it to everyone who might appreciate it in the same way. And this is a feeling uh, that very much is shared by Dan and I. And it's not lost on me that his academic diary is a book that I myself have gifted to multiple <laughs> friends and family members, including my mother, who uh, who said that it was brilliant. So that's very high praise indeed. <laughs> wow, Kasia, Les- where is there to go from there? <laughs> my word, you know, thank you for that. It's incredibly generous. I just say, I, I, I'm so delighted to do this because I'm such a big fan of the show and the podcast. And so um, just thrilled to be here uh, and thank you for that uh dismantle of the ivory tower well I, I like the idea of that i think they can put that on my gravestone i'll take that <laughs> um so les welcome to cursed objects we are so thrilled to have you here um what have you brought in for us today well cassie it was it was a i thought initially because I, I as i say i'm a fan of, of of the podcast so i listen to you all the time i thought oh god what am i gonna do and something what that has occurred to me and that I've noticed is the proliferation of sort of place-based paraphernalia, a bit like sort of postcode paraphernalia, T-shirts, you know, with I Love SC14 mm. or, you know, T-shirts with Catford or Chicken Shot, Morley signs on T-shirts. And mm. there's something about that, that that really struck me about, you know, how a city like London, but not only London, all cities that are changing and becoming more gentrified, it seems like there's a kind of obsession with developing this kind of very localised, very uh, micro place branding through T-shirts. Mm. I mean, I've even got – I mean, I, I, I live in, live, I've lived in Catford for many, many years in south-east London, and when I first moved to Catford, I remember the, the reaction of my friends and colleagues at, at Goldsmiths and other academics saying, oh, you're moving to Catford. And they would look at me with this sort of forlorn, sad 
expression, almost as if someone had just died, you know. Oh, gosh. Uh, why would you want to do that? <laughs> now we have the House of Catford, you know, and I am a proud owner of a, of a Catford-branded bottle opener. I haven't quite made it to the, t- to, 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 to the T-shirt yet. But it, it just has struck me as really, really interesting that there's something going on about, you know, these, and in a way, you know, I've spent so much of my my writing and researching life thinking about how things can be redefined at, at the small scale, at the local scale, mm. why localities matters, why places matter mm. um, in terms of the big issues about how we understand sense of belonging, of race, of nation, of identity, all those things. What happens at the local scale? And, and, and here we are, here I'm finding these objects and, and, and finding more examples of them all the time. This sort of uh, this branding of place. And there seems to be something in that that is both fascinating and cursed. Absolutely. I sit here in my uh, I Love NW5 Kentish Town (laughs) t-shirt in preparation for this because I think there's something really interesting that you touch on that like, and, and this is also something that we think about quite a lot in Cursed Objects. These are objects that we ourselves buy because in and of themselves, they're quite intriguing. But there is something really strange about how... Um, our kind of local communities and neighborhoods are, I don't know, would we say commodified, sold back to us? The image of them are sold back to us? I think there's, I think you've put your finger on it, Cassie. There's something about the process of, of both commodification of place and selling back that is part of the curse. You know, I started to think about this uh, in preparation for the show. And the thing that I think I fir- first struck me in terms of city branding was the, the famous, you know, I Heart New York or I Heart mm-hmm. NY. Uh, and it just, there's a clue in that story because it, it begins in the 1970s and it was mm-hmm. commissioned by the New York State uh, Department of Commerce. By You know, they basically got an ad company in and this bloke called Milton Glasser sketched the, the I Heart NY on, on a, you know, with a crayon. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then it's had this extraordinary life. And, you know, I think, Cities like London are, are similar, and Berlin, and sometimes the skyline is sketched, isn't it, on T-shirts as a kind of an emblem um, of of the city mm. itself, and it's part of its branding. and And it's the thing that was curious about what we've seen in recent times with this hyper local stuff is that it's happening at the very, very smallest scale. Mm. Sorry, by smaller scale, do you mean that it's happening on bottle openers or do you mean <laughs> that it's happening like on the side of buildings or like is it just necessarily the, the size of the messages or is it that it is part of the fabric of our everyday? I think it's the granularity of the local, really. That's what I mean by mm. scale. So I think it is on small objects, too. <laughs> Can't believe I've confessed to having my cat for bottle opener. It gives me tremendous <laughs> pleasure, I have to say, every time I reach for it. But um, but yeah, I just mean in terms of the geographic scale, they're local identities. They're very very localized, you know. And I know all parts mm. of the city have them. Uh, and on the one hand, it feels like there's it, it's connected to the way in which place is branded and commodified. Uh, and, mm. you know, local identities are, are branded and commodified. And, and on the other hand, it feels like there's something else that's going on because they're beloved things and objects. You know, I don't I don't hold any, you know, when I see people wandering down the street with their Catford branded stuff on, I don't think, oh, that's a gentrifier, you know, mm. a newcomer, how dare you? So I, I think that's just 
too crass and, and and cruel actually but but there's something about the on the one hand the the yearning for place and and the mm. sense of place and also how difficult that is to attain in in contemporary London because you know it's true to say that some people are yearning for that sense of place getting a foothold on the property ladder and getting a sort of foothold in a place and then there are others who are being run out of those places you know are being priced out mm. or can't mm. find a space in the very same localities and so that's what I think you know there's that's where I think the curse is unfolding as well. I think the point that these, uh, whether it's the city branding of um, I Heart New York, uh, which, as you say, was the 1970s, all these sort of hyper-local things that we see increasingly in uh, in sort of neighbourhoods in London, I think in order to understand the curse, in order to understand um, the role that they're playing uh, in terms of gentrification, it's really important to look at the exact sort of temporality, the, you know, when are, the, when are these things happening? So New York in the 1970s, um, you know, it's it's about re, it was about rebranding um, an industrial a city for the sort of post-industrial age, um, both internally in terms of you know the uh, sort of level of pride and and uh, sort of self-respect of the city, mm. but but also externally to tourists to investors. Um, and sort of sending a message that, you know, the New York, I mean, this is like just before Giuliani um, begins his uh, his infamous sort of and much replicated and in many quarters admired and some reviled um, mm. zero tolerance campaign. Um, and, and I think marketing, uh, sort of marketing of place often has aligned with a moment in which um, an institution, the state, or possibly the business community, or possibly the two of them working together, have decided that it's time that we change the way that people think about this place. Mm. And that was the case in New York in the 1970s. And you know, it's uh, I think it's largely largely understood to have worked on the on the terms that it was set for itself, which was to to make New York a place that everybody wanted to visit, and rather than a place that was associated with um, with violent crime um, and, you know, per per zero tolerance with with graffiti and other such <laughs> such yeah, yeah, yeah. D- deadly deadly crimes as mm. that. Um, but I, and so it's interesting, I think, to trace things back to something like I Heart NY, um, and then look at how they compare with like like what what are the most. It is quite a recent thing, something like House of Catford, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> it is. And, and, and I Heart Hackney, which is a mu- one much closer to us all geographically here in in London, yeah. um, was created in two thousand and six. It was it was, um, but I think by the local council, mm. um, according to something I, I was reading this morning, following the broadcast of a Channel Four property program, which branded yeah. Hackney as quote <laughs> the worst place to live in the UK. And this is you know this is when the murder the so called murder mile in Clapton. Yeah. Was uh, was being documented in the national press as sort of you know mm. well you, we, it's there in the language isn't it and so mm. it's about sort of you know a, a reinvention strategy that makes it palatable to the middle classes but also to investors. What what I think is really interesting that just I was yeah so taken by by all of these things that we've just been talking about is how you can kind of see that the very language 
by which cities are experienced has changed fundamentally. Mm. I think that's what I'm getting from both of these, from from the example of New York, from the example of I Heart Hackney. And I was thinking about, um, it's a little, it's kind of like a little town outside of London called Harpenden. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was in Harpenden with my mum and um, my mum and my auntie. And they've got like, not I love, like not I heart Harpenden, but like basically like Harpenden merch. That's like, (laughs) like, you know, a kind of like mapping of the like of the internal, I don't know, like the key buildings and stuff. So I've got like a postcard that's like basically I heart Harpenden and like you can get socks like that as well. So even places that are, not um that you wouldn't associate with quote unquote the kind of gentrification of like Hackney or inner city London or whatever even those places on the outside um are kind of experiencing this commodification of space right in a way that I think I don't know whether it's about um local um local history as a kind of like local pride or 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 what that is but Mm. there is something really interesting about how even even spaces like Harpenden which I think uh, I, every single time I think about it, I just think about, I think it's in Alan Partridge when he goes, Harpenden, Harpenden, Harpenden. It's the only thing I think about when I think <laughs> about Harpenden. Only, that's the only thing I know about Harpenden as well. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that like the Thames link goes there, yeah. like it's the only thing I know about Harpenden. But like even places like that, I think there is a, uh, a kind of commodification of the experience of, of living mm-hmm. there. And I think that that's interesting. I was talking to uh, a Marxist pal, um, who was, uh, you know, I was talking about the commodification of the city and he was like, uh, how can cities be commodified when only objects are the things that we exchange? Mm. And I think the idea that we can sell the experience mm. of the city yeah. and put it on things that we can then wear that are branded is kind of uh, really important in this conversation. I think so much. There's so much in exactly what you're you're describing there. It, it is the turning of place into things and you know it's not happening just because it's a it's a cool thing to buy it's happening also because place has been not only commodified in terms of as property but it's also being protected and surveyed i mean i i i wonder how dan thinks about this but being you know i'm in my 50s now and remembering london before the 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 fences and when you know london was sort of kind of bomb city in the 1950s 60s and 70s still and so there was so much open waste ground you know mm. it's why their warehouse parties, parties were possible because there's nothing there you know yeah, yeah. um and mm. and i think that that sense of london as a, a ruin and an, and with open possibilities um which was in you know in in a sense an opportunity for so much that seems to have changed so profoundly with the securitization of the city, but also with the the you know the places that you, you, you would think there couldn't possibly be a property bubble mm-hmm. um, and a boom, and of course that's exactly what's happening in those places now as they get discovered and speculated. Uh, it's become I mean it's become genuinely I, I don't know I spend so much of my life in London to be to be perfectly honest you know I've got my parents are from outside London I travel you know sort of when i can both in the uk and particularly in the last two years in the uk and uh and abroad but i spend such a large portion of my life in london that i genuinely find it quite uh surprising to be somewhere like bradford where my mom's from as i was last summer and to see vacant lots in the center of the city that's that's how sort of normalized it has become in in, in london that to expect every single 
inch of developable land to be developed. I mean, it's why it's why I think parks are so important. They're the only place that touch wood you can't develop into into luxury flats. But um, that that was the norm in most cities for for a large portion of the history of cities that you would have space that was was not currently either occupied by um, by 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 property that was making money for somebody or in the process of being developed into you know property like it, it, it you you two must find that as well like it's quite a surprise to see a brownfield yeah. site mm. yeah do you know what i was just thinking again when both of you were speaking there about how the changing city and then also the commodification of the city kind of represents a limiting of our imagination in terms of how the city can be used yeah. or like mm. how we imagine our own lives and experiences in that city so like for example um les i, I did some work on um like post post-war bomb sites mm. and like children and play you know because like that you you it, it emerges in so many people's recollections of london like in the 60s and 70s you know this idea of like yeah we used to just play, play in bomb sites yeah. and there is this idea of like you know mm. how the city was imagined and now now that you i mean i'm not saying now that we can't play in bombs bomb sites how we imagine this <laughs> i'm not saying quite like in quite a causal way now you know now we can't play in bomb sites that it's necessarily a bad thing. What I'm saying is, is that um, how we imagine the city has changed. So before we would use spaces uh, more freely, whereas now all we have the kind of, you know, the glib kind of postmodern in me is like, all we've got is the, is the shopping mall. All we've got is the house of cat for t-shirt. Cause all we dream <laughs> of is being able to buy our way out of the experience or into the experience. Yeah, no, true. I mean, that there was that brilliant study by the Opies, weren't wasn't there on play in the in those in those in mm. those spaces? And yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a clue. It's a bit, it, you know, it might seem a bit of a reach from you know my my cat for bottle opener to public <laughs> space, a discussion about public culture and public space. But but I think there are these things. It's partly why you know you're onto something so interesting in what you're doing with these cursed things. They they're clues, aren't mm. they? I mean, I, I'm just rem- just remembering now as we're talking that, you know, the reason I moved to Catford was because there used to be a, a greyhound racing track there, um, which my dad went in the 1950s <laughs> when there were six or 7,000, mainly working class men, it has to be said, going twice a week to watch the dogs run and to bet. You know, it was an incredibly mm. um, alive uh, alternative public sphere, you know, and, and it, it feels to now we have on the bridge – uh, on Catford Bridge, a few paintings of, you know, sort of slightly sad greyhounds bounding over the bridge, you know, in yes. in, in yellow and 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 and, uh, and green. You think, well, they're they're. It's partly why the the haunted nature of those traces remind us of the big shifts that are happening in city life and in public culture itself. I just I love that idea of like how heritage is traced now through well how heritage is traced and commodified as well. Mm. So um, I know that Dan, like me and Dan, have spoken about this quite often. You know the idea of like going into a Weatherspoons pub and learning a lot about the area from looking <laughs> at like you know the things that are on the walls, but also uh, being hyper aware that the Weatherspoons is trying to you know trying to get your money and it's trying Oops. to be like look I'm like a local pub, mm. <laughs> look at all this local history and it's commodified that sense of history but it's such a shame because that's sometimes the only places where uh the history exists right or where you can see it kind of uh easily it's an attempt yeah i mean the, uh, the spoons is an interesting example because it is it is actually it's it's a cynical attempt to 
uh, undercut the fact that the, they are identikit, you know, by, by their nature, chain pubs, which sell the exact same beer and the exact same food and have the exact same decor, apart from the carpets, famously, which are different in every one. <laughs> but, but, but the way the way they attach to the local area um, and sort of try and, uh, you know, make up for the fact that they are homogenizing high streets and arguably, some people say so, some people say not, uh, leading to sort of independent local boozers shutting down mm. is is by mm. sort of you know delving uh, for people who don't go to Everspoons pubs there were, there's usually like quite detailed historical photographs plaques informations about lo- information about local people that lived there like one of my where I grew up in Tooting that one, one of the, the the spoons there has information about music hall stars that used to mm. that grew up in the area and stuff and it's genuinely fascinating <laughs> fascinating stuff so we sort of celebrate it at the same time as being aware of of what, of what we're being sucked into when that when that happens um but you see you also see i mean to speak to your point kasha you also you see heritage being very very heavily uh recuperated by the property industry um uh in in a growing number of developments if you walk around a city like london same street manchester birmingham glasgow um, and liverpool you will often see on the property hoardings um these gestures to um like in fact there are some in the there are some in the uh around clary wharf at the moment that tell the story of that area as a way of sort of again sort of glossing over the fact that the much the investment will be from you know vast international uh, investment sort of uh, conglomerates and, and and will be making money for and quite probably housing people uh, who are the international super rich and mm. in order to ground it um you know here's here's sort of a few sentences uh, of text i mean in the case of canary wharf it's usually glorifying the um sugar trade and the rum trade without any of the yeah. detail about what that actually involved for for the people subjugated by it <laughs> mm. absolutely well those processes that they're so they suffer they on the one hand they're very opportunistic aren't they and they're very selective and also they they sort of reveal and conceal at the same time mm. very often but it's in those places are are a bit like i think they're the repositories of history and they bear the traces i've always thought that that's one of the invitations for us who are interested in understanding them and just and the social world more broadly. They're, they're resources for us to try and recover or rub mm. history against the grain, as Walter yeah. Benjamin once said brilliantly. You know, so rub that story against the grain and see what else is there to to be recovered or thought about. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, the thing you know. So on the one hand, you know, I of course this process is d- totally tied up to the way in which capitalist cities work it's about the selling selling mm. things to us places to us homes to us uh, associations to us mm. at the same time I, I don't know if how you, if you feel this there, there's something about the the sort of sense of, be, of the beloved nature of people's associations and attachments to the places they they inhabit that they've made their own that they're trying to kind of find a living space within um that i still feel I'm completely fascinated by and, mm. and compelled by and, and and wouldn't want to and want to take seriously and really pay close attention to you know I mean I one of the one of the ways I was sort of trying to think about this before we started recording was the fact that sometimes you know the phrase place branding is itself um icky for want of a better mm. word it is something that mm. makes it sort of sets you know <laughs> make, it makes you feel uncomfortable it, you know it is sort of a cursed expression really um and yet 
you know, could we talk about um, the possibilities or indeed the existence of place branding from below? The fact that, um, mm. and, and I'm, it was always going to happen, I'm going to bring up grime uh, yeah, music and, and drill here because, you know, the the way that um, that kind of, you know, working class musicians, I mean, for, this goes throughout history really, but throughout the history of popular music, but, um, you know, the stuff that I'm obsessed with and have written a lot about, grime music, made a real virtue uh, for people who aren't fans of it themselves made a real virtue of foregrounding the local area of celebrating the hyper local and celebrating uh, and, and you know that 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 actually goes as far as place branding as well like so um i mentioned this to you to les to les um over email the, earlier this week but we we're talking about the the way that the grime crew the square from southeast london <laughs> describes lewisham <laughs> as slewisham I've actually got a whole list of them here. So, like, um, you know, Lewisham is sometimes referred to as the blue borough because yeah, of the colour of the of the bins and the and the um, the colour of the uh, of the yeah, local. It's sort of municipal like, branding, actually. Yeah. It's blue and gold, <laughs> yeah. the gold crown <laughs> and the blue backdrop. Yeah, which is a beautiful. And you can you can get Lewisham t-shirts. And actually, all even even those that didn't produce uh, their own objects, their own um, <laughs> merch along these grounds, you know, back in the 2000s when Gribe was sort of kicking off, the the, the lads from Limehouse referred to it as Wild House, as in uh, the phrase to wile out. Mm. Um, Barking and Dagenham became Barking and Dogenham, according to the OT crew from, from East <laughs> London. Peckham becomes Peknam because it's, yeah. you know, it's like experiencing Vietnam in the sense of the Vietnam War, as mm. far as SN1 and Giggs' crews. Because, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, the list goes on. There's, you know, there's the Cronks, Les, you mentioned. To me oh, well. yeah, the Cronks. What a <laughs> phenomenon that is. You can get your, your Cronks t shirt as well with the. Uh, <laughs> What was when I was a boy was called the Thruppany Bit Building, which in later generations was called the 50p Building, which is the NLA Tower next to yeah. Croydon's East Croydon <laughs> Station. Yeah, I mean, I, I love all this. I don't know about you, you Dan, but I yeah, just absolutely. think this is playful, subversive. I mean, I think yeah. the thing, and it, you're right, it, it has a particular sort of moment, doesn't it, with with the emergence of crime? But in a way, that it's their drear references, the kind of local. Um, the vernacular of sound system culture, which was always about sounds from particular places. Right. Um, and so, you know, I remember um, just reading in Echo's um, newspaper, Black Echoes as it was, they once had a map of London, which was mapped through the sort of sound systems and their areas, the reggae mm. sound systems. So in a way, this is all a bit, it feels like it's a taking back and a recoding yeah. of those things. Um, I mean, I think, would you say that the, the sort of grime crews and and the and the version of bass culture that sort of comes to life later, mm. um, they're incredibly entrepreneurial. I mean, you know, I think sound system culture invented DIY pop mm. culture. I mean, mm. it was all done yourself, you know. And yeah. there is something about the entre- there's a kind of entrepreneurial aspect to that. Um, do you, I don't know Completely. if you would recognise that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the you know, this is. This is a genre built around pirate stations, pirate radio stations, which um, could not be more DIY and could not be more entrepreneurial. You know, they were they were hoping to make money. A lot of them didn't, um, uh, but they were more than that. They were hoping to. They were fi- trying to find a, a medium through which to communicate their music to yeah. the hyper local area, and and you know the 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 radius of your pirate radio aerial. Um, sort of defined who it was that you were able to communicate with and um, 
and you know all of those all of those musicians became stars in their local area and yeah. felt i think both sort of you know great joy uh you know having interviewed a ton of them a ton of the, these young people formerly young people um and <laughs> that they uh became both sort of local superstars yeah. um who you know would be mobbed if they're walking down the local street by fans uh but you know if they go one borough over no one knows who they are was mm. <laughs> sort of you know slight, mm. perhaps slightly exaggerated way of putting it but a lot you know it, 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 this also speaks to the fact that like mobility within the city for working class people of color particularly the you know black male teenage boys that were most of the most of the grime scene mm. um and were the inheritors of that sound system culture from the 70s and 80s that it was it's harder to move around the city safely when yeah. you've got the national front you've got police on your back um and you've got you know a, a city which is ultimately hostile to you um you become you know i think more invested in the lo- in the hyper local it's sort of somewhat like the walls are closing in you know like yeah. your mobility within the city becomes yeah. even, and so area pride you know, which is ultimately what we're talking about today, mm. um, and, and sort of place branding becomes even more important, I think, in that context. Yeah, and you know, let's call it what it is. You know, that kind of that level of surveillance and policing has a long history. You know, mm. it's it's a colon it's a colonial form of governing mm. that you know mm. that gets applied to British cities. It, it becomes ever more sophisticated. You know, and, and the, the whole idea that this can be just, there's a point where it's it's openly racialized, and then it has to kind of find other mechanisms to do the work of racism. Mm. I mean, it, it just, I just, it, it, it spins my head around to think that this is all done in the, in you know, in the rhetoric of health and safety and the like, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and, mm. and, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I think those things have to be absolutely focused on and called out and, but at the same time, that the the human cost uh, mm. in those lives, I, I think, Dan, you know, when I used to go into those rooms, and I still do, and mm. and sit down with people and listen to that, you think, well, actually, that the the the, the, the institutional processes uh, are really important to foreground. Mm. At the same time, this sort of experiential, everyday, what it means to try and try and make a world, yeah, uh, needs also to be heard and and listened to and. Making a world is something that happens when you have, you know, songs about <laughs> songs celebrating that world. When area pride is kind of recorded in song, and again, you know, many genres of, <laughs> of music have done this. You know, their entire—I uh, seem to remember a, a theme, a themed section on the Guardian where they had, uh, you know, your your fa- they asked for everyone's favourite songs about London, and the list yeah. went on for like hundreds of hundreds of pages. You know, yeah. you could just you could go on forever with them. But um, but you know, the the in in the context of some of the hyper local stuff we're talking about here, yeah, some of the, some of those some of those grime tunes, particularly that I loved, were, were you know celebrating, you know, whether it's North Wheezy, um, <laughs> shout out North Wheezy, or the uh-huh. um, my my absolute favourite Southside All Stars, which saw all of the South London grime MCs to come together. And it's literally, it's something like 30 different MCs from across half of a major city of millions of people, um, each doing a verse about what was so great about, you know, I mean, he mentions, he even mentions Ballum <laughs> uh, and Clapham Common and ones of common and these extremely unglamorous and uncool bits of Southwest London that I grew up in, you know, mm. <laughs> they, they get a shout out as well. And it's a, it's a it's a genuinely joyful kind of celebration of 
of locality. I mean, you know, I, I certainly know people that are not excited when they talk about the era they grew up in. But to hear young people <laughs> see young people in music videos smiling and like raising their fists up and uh, and shouting about how great you know Tooting Beck or Forest Hill is, <laughs> I think yeah. it's just an absolutely wonderful thing. Yeah, I do too. You know, and I, and in a way. I suppose one of the things that I, I thought I was trying to find ways to sort of describe and and also to to recognise the joy and power of those things, you know, um, from the from the very the days when I was a youth worker in the nineteen eighties, you know, it was so alive. It was so alive. I don't think it began then, mm. but it was so alive. And you know, the idea that you could you could redefine your world at that scale, you know. Mm. Um, I, I, and and I think you're right. You know, the, the, there's a reason why there are so many songs about London in that way. And you know, I think all the way, all ranging from you know, you and McCall's "Sweet Thames Flow Softly." Do you know that tune? Mm. Where it's like London is, you know, it, London is like a love affair. It's a lover that you, mm. that you, you know, the, from the jewels um, on Woolwich Pier to you know, to Thames Reach to Ray Black and My Hood. I love that tune, you know, because mm. it seems to be on the one hand a sort of a celebration of, of place, but also some of the, the grit and the, mm. um, you know, the love of the calf, not the cafe uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that sort of stuff, you know, and there's an appreciation think, of the complexity of that. Exactly. Area. Like, you know, you can have area pride without thinking it's perfect. Right. Definitely. I mean, what Kashu, can I ask you about Kentish town? Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Of course you can ask me about Kentish Town. (laughs) (laughs) You can always ask me about Kentish Town. (laughs) Well, is there, I mean, I was going to, the glib question is, are there any songs that mention Kentish Town? But also I'm just curious, as a South Londoner, what's, you know, what's what's the identity of the area? I mean, I'm really interested in the in the notion that certain parts of London, certain hyper-local areas have a particular identity. You know, the the Ballam that I grew up in um, appeared on a, a property developer's advert on the tube that I saw once about five years ago, which had made alliterative little uh, two-word phrases out of a bunch of different parts of London. And it referred to Ballam as Banker's Ballam. And that hurt me more than anything I've ever <laughs> read in my life because the Ballam that I grew up in in the 80s and 90s was not Banker's Ballam. No. Um, and by 2010 or whatever, that I noticed this advert and felt my heart sink. Oh. <laughs> um, Do you but, know Because this is, this is exactly how I feel about Kentish Town, yeah. that I love Kentish Town, but the, but the worst thing about Kentish Town is that Giles Corrin lives there. <laughs> <laughs> he lives here and he's got like four houses and he always talks about Kentish Town and how good it is in his like reviews so that he can bump up the, the property the price. house price and you're like this isn't for you mate <laughs> don't so annoying. stop blackening so our annoying. name <laughs> i guess i really i really wanted to ask about the role of the global here because i feel like our cities have been ever commodified in a way that is like you know like identityless mishmashes where you could go to any city in the world and the architecture is the same and the mm. uh, restaurants are the same and whatever mm. and i kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about the role of the the, of globalization here, really, because I think that's quite an important aspect of this idea of the hyperlocal. Oh, what's going on? Life in the street. The shouts from the street <laughs> have begun. Um, <laughs> we, should, we can just carry on, I think. Yeah, that's carry texture. <laughs> it. That's texture, definitely. Well, that's that's every working, every given day. <laughs> um, 
the very same streets, I think, Katya, that are being being marketed in a very, very sort of granular, hyper-local way are also the very straight same streets that are the nodes of global capitalism. I mean, in London, mm. I often, in the days when it was just Canary Wharf and, and then a couple of towers, um, even when it felt like it was like an inverted three-pin plug that was plugging into the electricity of global <laughs> capital, you know. Um, Love that. And, and so, of course, you know, it's... It, there's that it is a global process i mean what i think and and i think the city branding thing is part of that mm. that you know mm. it, it's it's not only um marketing for tourists and to track people to come but it's also you know angling for a place within that global system i think and roles within it mm. or, you know london as a finance center and so on those kinds of things and and centers of of ed, of education and uh, and you know providers of, of global of a globally mm. branded education system i think that's all very much at play um mm. so i think these 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 processes are happening at the same time you've reminded me of something that um so i worked on this project with um with three fantastic friends and colleagues anna minton um alberto duman and uh, malcolm james on a, on a book about um about the olympics and uh Re, the regeneration of East London, which is called Regeneration Songs, and something I remember talking to to my friends then about uh, the rebranding of Newham for the Olympics was that the old Newham Council logo was replaced in advance the Olympics with a new logo. If you look, if you Google this, you can find the old one just about the new one. Or you just walk around Newham now, you will see it. The new one is Newham London. <laughs> it's got mm-hmm. London now. There was there was an absolute eureka moment I had when we were thinking about this sort of branding, this place branding, and this regeneration, um, like massive, massive regeneration scheme, all of which was about attracting global investment. And we suddenly thought, wait, why is London in in the in the name? If you you know you're in, you don't need telling you're in London. If you're in Newham, you're aware. You might you might not know you're in Newham. Fair enough. Put up a sign saying Newham. You need to you know that happens in every borough of every big city. Um, but what an extraordinary thing to put the word London in the branding of a specific borough. And there's only yeah. one reason for that, and it's to attract global investment. And do you know what? It worked. They got a £1 billion uh, investment from a, chi- a slightly shady Chinese group called um, the Asian Business uh, Park, um, who were who bought a huge swathe of what used to be the Royal Docks and attempting to turn it into a, a, a sort of basically China's uh, foothold uh, in Europe, which is something that Boris Johnson, as mayor at the time, um, it would have been um, not 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 prime minister, and David Cameron, and I think Eric Pickles. There was sort of three oh, yeah. three pronged attack basically to to try and you know and you know and that probably makes very good business sense in a in a kind of global capitalist world to try and make sure that China's major kind of corporate foothold. In Britain, in the twenty first century, sorry, in Europe, in the twenty first century, is located in in Britain's capital. Mm. Um, apparently, the the Asian Business Park is not going so well now, and I recommend heartily a piece by Oliver Wainwright in the Guardian about that recently. It's faltered a lot. Uh, I think COVID's got in the way. Uh, anyway, I digress. But a really interesting example of how the hyperlocal hyperlocal branding is used to connect to a truly, you know, global global economy. I, I think it's about audience, or put it another way, it's about market, isn't it? What kind of market and audience 
coupling is happening there. And that's exactly, I mean, I've just, I've just seen that Newham London thing. I, I it passed me by actually. That's so interesting mm. that, that that's required. And it, you know, I guess it, it, it's about how the city is read too, isn't it? And, mm. and, and how those distinctions are, are what, how legible they are. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I was just wondering, so, um, it's just so interesting hearing the difference between like branding and also the discussions that we've had on like culture from below and how um, people kind of reclaim a sense of self through place mm. like we all have and yeah. we all do. And I was kind of wondering whether either of you two had any top tips for how to spot a kind of like genuine article of like <laughs> of like culture express- expression through object that is this kind of this kind of representation of a like identity through place. Mm. And like, what are your top tips on going? Okay, this is the this is the one that's obviously been put out by like I don't know some corporation, and then this one is obviously <laughs> the one that's been created by like some kids and then sold on Etsy or whatever. How? What are your top tips? So you mean like for spotting? Sorry, just to reframe your question. So it's like which are the cursed objects and which are the blessed objects? Is that what which you mean? are the cursed and which are the blessed? Exactly, exactly. Brilliant. Cursed and blessed objects. I think that's your part. That's your that's your uh, sequel. <laughs> Cursed and blessed objects. Hmm. Well, I, I think um, that's a good question, isn't it? How do we know the difference? Well, maybe the difference is not so straightforward, actually. But but mm. perhaps we know we should be suspicious if they're if if they're being produced by the local authority or yes. by a uh, a local business partnership. Or, or a new startup, or if they're if they're the brand for a pop up that's just appeared in the formerly derelict uh, Woolworths um, in your local area, perhaps that could be those those are clues. The, the blessed objects are the ones that are surprising. I think. Mm. I, I think if if they surprise us, then that might be a clue. I don't know if you think that's true, Dan, or not. But like some of the things you showed me um, recently that come out of that the sort of grime recoding of of place. Mm. Uh, just, I just love those. There's, there's one from a different city. I'm actually moving to Glasgow in a, in a few weeks' time, and and you know Glasgow had this kind of city branding initiative. People make Glasgow with the big pink um, mm. square, and it looks visiting Glasgow now. The 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 city branded corporate version of it looks a bit tired, um, but there's a a a wonderful example of its of its reappropriation. Um, by an by an, an, an organisation, they're called the Blank Faces, and they make these amazing things. They make T-shirts, and their their slogan is not "People make Glasgow," but "People make mistakes." <laughs> and I just love that. And you know, it, I've just got their website up here, and and they they describe their the what they're doing is the UK uh, the UK's first clothing label aimed at ending homelessness. Each of our designs is inspired or created by someone who is or has experienced homelessness. It tells their story and has their voice. Mm. People make mistakes. That's lovely, that's isn't it? <laughs> so I think that's my blessed object, Cassia. <laughs> it sort of captures it. a sense of, you know, uh, well, the humour and, and then the pain, actually. But yeah, that spe- speaks to some of the conflicted uh, feelings we have about place or places, the places we we love, but but you know, 
sometimes as you say experience pain pain in as well or because of I, yeah. I would I would echo in terms of spotting sort of cursed and blessed uh, place branded objects yeah I think I think I think Les answered that perfectly I would say it, it's interesting to to look at who's produced particular objects I looked at I was curious about who produced today's cursed object, the uh, the House of Catford mm. uh, merch, and um, sort of went to the about page and found like it said something about how oh you know it's produced by Team Catford, who many of you will know. I was like, I, of course I don't know who Team. I live not far away in South East London, but mm. I don't know what Team Catford is. Is that a sports team? So I googled Team Catford. This is capital T, capital C. Google Team Catford and found the Team Catford homepage, separate homepage. And on their about page, I've just got to read you this because it's quite funny. Um, it says, this is the top of their about page. Many people know Team Catford for steering the Catford Town Centre framework, engaging with the community to gather ideas and views on the vision that will shape the town centre for the next couple of decades. I just <laughs> love the idea that the Catford Town Centre framework is something that everybody's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> like it'll affect lots of people. It's clearly, it's, you know, it's an urban sort of regeneration scheme. But the idea that everyone's walking around being like, See what the Catford Town Centre framework have been up to recently? <laughs> Classic. Um, you know, obviously public consultations are really important when, when urban regeneration happens. And that this is, you know, I'm not on a tangent here. This stuff is intensely bound up with local place branding. Um, it's usually when a place branding or marketing scheme is launched is, is, is part of a, you know, you can't, you can't have a re, an urban regeneration scheme without a, a logo that's cost quite a lot of money and a really thought through marketing campaign. That's just how, how they function in the 21st century um, because there is so much of it's about the image that is projected to potential new arrivals, people who are going to buy the flat, people who are going to start businesses there, investors, you know. Um, and so that stuff is really important. Uh, unfortunately, but I mean, you know, we, we, I won't go down too much of a tangent here, but public consultations often tend to not involve as broad mm. a spread of the local community as we would all love them to and uh mm. go on cash can i just offer one of my own blessed objects that's place-based that i didn't actually think about but um i know les that you've written quite a lot and you think quite a lot about the neoliberal university and also how um i guess universities are involved in I don't think we could call it gentrification, but maybe studification, if that is a word, of the kind of local areas that they are kind of in, but also that they are increasingly expanding into. So um, I grew up in Hendon, which is uh, absolutely not cool, like <laughs> capital, not capital, cool, not cool. It's just not cool. Lamest place ever. It's basically just like a dual carriageway. And um, yeah, I grew up in that in that area, basically. But the Middlesex University that's based there is expanding. So the places that were lame, but I just took as part of the fabric of the space of this kind of weird kind of, uh, I guess, like suburban uh, kind of dystopia that I grew up in you know like the town hall and whatever they were places within this within this you know there was the the horrible dual carriageway but it was basically you know there was a town hall there were areas that you could locate in uh, or that you, you know there was like Hendon Library that I spent many of my kind of like childhood well teenage memories trying and failing to like flirt with local boys you know <laughs> they're like these this the kind of like whole um I don't know the kind of whole 
um, way of existing within a particular space. And uh, since Middlesex University has grown in size, it has increasingly bought up uh, local buildings. So the town hall is not the town hall. It is an extension of Middlesex University. The library that I went to and tried and failed to flirt with boys in is also being bought up. And um, they had a campaign actually run by this kind of like residence association and they sold these T-shirts and, you know, they, they had things that said like, uh, I'm a hen and I and like uh, end W4 till I die, like that kind of stuff. And I kind of want to offer that as a kind of also like a kind of blessed object here because that is a kind of sense of a kind of campaign group within an area to kind of stop this trend of studification or gentrification of an area while also kind of still playing. And I don't know, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of blessed and cursed because it's still playing into that commodification of space that we've kind of spoken about and and it really made me feel I bought these t-shirts and it made me feel really kind of uh proud conflicted strange I obviously bought them for like my dad and everyone I knew who Hmm. grew up in Hendon and I just kind of wanted to to know your thoughts really Les on the idea of of neighborhood nationalism Mm. um this is something that I know that you've thought about and I kind of wanted to you know I kind of wanted to again ask you one of these questions of you know what what is neighborhood nationalism when does it work when does it not work what are the kind of I guess what is it essentially I think people listen to this and not really know no of course well wouldn't expect them expect them to it was in a way the idea of neighborhood nationalism was something I was I coined um in in the late 80s, I suppose, um, and it's in a book uh, called New Ethnicities and Urban Culture, which was a book based on my PhD. Um, and mm-hmm. the idea of neighbourhood nationalism, I, I'd read in Hannah Arendt and also Phil Cohen had mentioned it, another cultural studies writer, the idea of nationalism of the neighbourhood. It was a sort of, it, it, was, a tr- it was a bit of a, um, a clue and an invitation. So I started to think, well, I can, in, in the everyday engagements and interactions that people have in their neighborhoods and the thing their, their familiarities they're often i think this is happening all the time trying to re-establish the terms of what it means to be of that place and to live in that mm. place mm. what it means to belong to that place and that though those terms were often in contrast to the you know the way in which Englishness or Britishness was being defined and and coded in terms of race and class and all of those kinds of big structural things, and so in in a way the idea of neighbourhood nationalism was not was a was a way of naming that process, while at the same time saying this isn't necessarily always an inclusive process. It can be very uneven, so there mm. can be alliances between groups of say you know of different kinds of cultural backgrounds maybe groups of different migrant histories for example that could be aligned and then there could be other groups that would be cast out or seen as being outside so it isn't necessarily a process that is always inclusive it can be a place where there are hierarchies of belonging as well Mm. and and so it was just an attempt to try and make sense of, of those kinds of things you see I think it's interesting as we're talking and always the best of these kinds of experiences when you start to think about things you hadn't anticipated before was it, it feels like both being blessed and cursed is, is tangled into each other. It's neither only blessed or cursed. It seems to me Mm. when we're thinking Mm. at this kind of scale of, of how issues of place and belonging unfold, perhaps, you know, 
there's the paradoxical combinations of those things is is the complexity of how we live um in in cities like london whether we live in the in the center of them or in the peripheries of them um so yeah i, th- I think it's something about trying to find ways to give a name to these processes um of, mm. of inclusion of belonging of mm. of joy of love as well as of, of exclusion and uh and and hate actually mm. Mm. i just i just love the um the speaking in the background les like you're <laughs> so embedded in your background it's phenomenal <laughs> like this is like i don't know such a fantastic representation of the object it's like an experiential yeah. like way of like demonstrating your object which i think is fantastic in, in, in the locality yeah i mean yeah, well you know it always surprise the thing i love about it cash is it's always a constant surprise you know you can either be <laughs> irritated or it can either be an irritation or it can be an invitation <laughs> yeah yeah and exactly. so and so that's 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 how i how I see it. And sometimes the irritation is just plain irritating, but oftentimes it's just, it leads to a, a surprise, uh, a, an encounter, a conversation that you wouldn't anticipate before. Yeah. I wanted to I'm say. I'm that we missed the saxophone. Oh, there. <laughs> if we, it depends how long we go on for. That's coming back. I mean, I, I, well, there, was a, there was an occasion over the summer and one of the very, very hot days that we've had this, this, um, this summer, when there was a sound system set up across the street of Laurie Grove, you know, like a proper full-on quad boxes, you know, mm. four 12-inch speakers on each side of the street. It, 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 yeah. And I was trying to um, do my <laughs> personal tutor <laughs> role with my students <laughs> at a distance. But, yeah, no, that's that, – I think that, that, that uh, the magic of place, really – those surprises, the full yeah. of the contradictions, the paradoxes as well. Um, and you must be excited about, I mean, relocating to Glasgow. How long have you been in London? This is, is, this, a, oh, is well, this a big move for you? It's a very big move for me. I mean, I, I, you know, I was born in Croydon. I moved to New Cross when I was 18. I lived here until, um, until I couldn't get a job and had to, to move to the Midlands. So I've, I've, I've had, I had a life um, period of about 10 years uh, living in in the Midlands in Coventry and Birmingham, loved it there actually, and then moved back to London. So yeah, it's a big relocation for me. It's a big, a big shift. Um, it's a wonderful and, uh, city. I'm really excited for you. It's just it's one of my favourite places in the UK, Glasgow. But I'm, yeah, I've, I've obviously only ever been a, a tourist there, a visitor. I uh, you know I, I I've I've just had enough, been going back there for a long period of time. Have long and strong connections there and. Mm. I, I often say to people, you know, I think in, in, inside um, every London, there's a kind of hidden Glaswegian. There's about something about port, port <laughs> cities. There's something yes. about the, the the vernacular, the irreverence, the humour of it, uh, the music too. I mean, you know, when I was a when I was a child in the growing up in the 1970s, the only person who described a world that was comprehensible to me or legible to me on TV was Billy Connolly. Right. He was the only one who spoke about a sense of things, a sense of place mm. Um, mm. that made sense. And, you know, I think I think about him now, obviously, he's at the end, towards the end of his life. And in a way, he is very much of that place. And it's a bit mm. like the blessing and, and curse of, of being of a place. But it, in the end, he, he's a, uh, somebody who constantly needs to try and get away from that place too. Mm. And mm. I think that's mm. that's something about... It, it kind of touches uh, some aspects of our conversation today. You know, yeah. in a way, you know, places are refuges 
to us. Mm. Yeah. Um, but they can also be prisons. They can also be confinements. Yeah. And so, like, I, w- I will always be lame because I'm from Hendon, unfortunately. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. I will never be cool because I'm literally from a dual carriageway. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's must be an unfair characterization. Can I, <laughs> do, you've reminded me, um, Les, I think of this is not a band I'm particularly a fan of, but I'm aware of the song tile and it feels appropriate now. LCD Sound System have, have a song called New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. Yeah. <laughs> Which I feel, yeah. feel, it feels like we anyone who inhabits and loves a city um, can relate to that, right? I think so. It's the paradox of home, I mm. think. Mm. I think it is. It's the paradoxical um, combinations of those things, you know, um, I think it's true of wherever we're from. And, you know, Cassia, enough about being cool or uncool. You know? <laughs> Everywhere is cool and uncool simultaneously, it seems to me. She protests um, too much, I think. No, no, it's not the protest. And, and, you know, and, and I, I recognise that. Uh, I recognise that feeling in myself too. Um, yeah, But uh, at the same time, I do think it's, it's – I think it, it, it kind of – although it might seem we started in the trivial place, I think it really comes to that – back to some pretty profound existential truths about how we live, where we reside, mm. how we try to make home. You know, I think that, mm. that and, and how difficult that is and, and the things that interfere with it and that uh, curse that mm. desire and yearning and, and also the things that bless that desire and yearning too. It's, um, can I just say, like, I'm really, I'm really sad that we, um, that we haven't, kind of touched on this before but obviously Les the first time I met you was at Ben Ragelli's uh, professorial lectureship when you did the um, introduction well you kind of introduced him as a as a professor I think that's the official title of it and um, Ben is actually someone who is from the area he grew up on the street that I currently live on so we have this connection to like space and place and I think there's something really interesting about how when you meet people from a similar area as you, even if you didn't know them or you grew up in completely different times with completely different terms of reference, you can still have that kind of like really deep connection based on that place specifically. Like there's always a street party and I'll always buy Ben postcards from from the area, <laughs> from like even from like, you know, way before he was even like living here. So there's just this like amazing thing about how place and space can kind of, yeah, shape, determine, shape and determine us, but also the connections that we forge with people in unexpected, unexpected, unexpected situations. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, I, I remember that very well, Cassia. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of, it's exceptional at Sussex, actually. I don't know anywhere else who does that. And I, I've been asked to do it a couple of times, and I always say, yeah, I'll do that, definitely. Introduce someone, yeah, I'll definitely mm-hmm. do that. Uh, particularly somebody like Ben Rogelli, who I admire so much, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think so. In those places, there's the deposits of history. There's a, there are st- sort of structures of feeling. There are, there are associations. There's a past there, which can can also be a common reference point, regardless of at what point you engage that trace, mm. if you like, or that mm. sense mm. of a place. I, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that that's partly there are they're like kind of kind of ways in which we anchor ourselves in the mm. world. But I think that can only apply to the hyperlocal. I would say, like uh, we we must have all had the feeling, the experience of being 
abroad and meeting somebody from somewhere close to home and that sort of slightly uncanny and discombobulating thing of having a shared a shared sort of background or experience, moment of experience uh, with someone far from that place but I wouldn't I wouldn't ex- I wouldn't be excited if I was in a bar in Spain and met someone from broadly London that wouldn't that wouldn't interest yeah. me if I met someone from Honor Oak Park where I live now I'd feel really ex- I, I you know we'd we'd suddenly be swapping stories and enthusiasms about about that particular place and I think maybe it's something about the size of London that I think what you're just what you describe Kasha is in a way I would get I would guess I'm guessing they'd be more likely to be experienced from someone in a small town who grew up in a small town in Dorset, you know, like if they were to meet someone who had also grown up in that, you know, that that's, that's rare. That's, you know, that's, that's exciting. Mm. Um, I don't know. I have very low standards. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm on holiday and I meet like someone from even like, yeah, London, I'll be like, no way, which part, you know what a red bus is too. (laughs) And then, you know, it only gets, it only gets better and better the more localized it gets. If they're from Kent, town well I mean like you know free drinks all night I mean if I had the money free drinks all night (laughs) I mean I love I love one thing I loved about living in Dalston was um was seeing the highly specific Turkish bars and social clubs that pertain to a particular town well it would always be a football club it would be or be denoted by a football club so we were really near I was living in a in a of house share near the um Fenerbahce social club and Fenerbahce of quite a big football team they're like the you know the Arsenal or whatever of, of Istanbul um but every small town you know Trabzonspor like Trabzonspor I think they're called like social club is somewhere up there on green lanes you know the, there are about 15 of these different places each of them um each of them speaking to to you know a, an expatriate community who I'm assuming um, you know, are sort of connecting, reconnecting with people that that are from from their former home in their new home. You know, or maybe not so new home. Maybe it's maybe 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 you're third, you're third generation Turkish Brit. You know, and and you're and you're finding that same connection. But I think it comes. I think it really speaks to that thing about making home. Uh, and I've, I'm fascinated by the idea of home. Have been for a long time. You know, because it's. Well, I think what's interesting about it is on the one hand. It can be prone to being appropriated by, you know, powerful interests and, mm. and you know, the, the home of homeland and of nationalists, but also the home of, of, of the domestic space that's controlled, the sort of patriarchal sense of home. Mm. But also home is, can signal those things about assembling or creating places to be an existence, mm. a being, a sense of belonging that isn't, isn't guaranteed by anything else, isn't offered by anything else. It's made in that space of of um, of, of, of of struggling for space. Actually, mm. I, think, I think that's sometimes what I think. Yeah, from the truth. I mean, I love I love the idea of the futurity of home. I just think <laughs> it's like so fantastic that home can be like both like a kind of like thing that you are like rooted in and grounded in historically, but it's also about the imagination of like future and hope and and mm. like. Yeah, like how you navigate that, I think, is so, so beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, Cassius, these are things that have really been on my mind in terms of, um, mm. you know, both the, the the preciousness of the idea of home and how people make it, mm. as well as the forces that bear down on, on that, at those attempts or undermine it. You know, it, it feels like um, 
you know, home isn't an innocent place that's outside of whether it be the things that Dan was talking about in terms of, you know, the policing of cities and the and the um, and the legacy of racism that is about, you know, what's happening to those young people in those gang orders is is of this of of the same kind of stripe of of violent power of the the, the labeling of muggers in the 1970s it seems to me so it's mm-hmm. it's where all this is is happening at the same time but it's also a, a a space of hope in that it hasn't is yet to be realized you know it is mm-hmm. it is as as Ernst Bloch would say it is it is to come it is and it is it's not finished yet and I, I still think the sort of work that it doesn't matter where you do it, whether you're doing it on a podcast or writing journal articles or writing um, op-ed pieces for newspapers. I, I think being attentive to those processes is about hope's work. Mm. Yeah. It's where hope is attended to and given the, the seriousness of, of careful attention. Mm. Oh, Les, I just feel like I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I've just had such a lovely time, like, listening to you, like, you, listening to you kind of explore these things, I guess. Like, it's just the way that you kind of articulate all of these really complex feelings that I think we all feel. And I guess, like, having you on Cursed Objects has been such a dream because you completely get that idea that, like, Things are never straightforward <laughs> and it's never just like, Amen. oh, like I, I love Catford, so I'm going to have a Catford bottle opener or, or whatever. You get the fact that like in owning this thing, there is that kind of critical voice, you mm. know, and I, I mean that in kind of like critical thinking terms um, that kind of goes, okay, but what does this really mean? Like, what is this? And it's so, and like when you were talking earlier about the cursed clues, this is exactly it. It just feels like you have kind of I mean we've been part of this journey with you to kind of unpick this really nebulous and challenging and difficult way of thinking and feeling in 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 the contemporary period I guess is how well, I would incredibly just... generous of you to say it like that but I, I, you know I see it in others as well I I I think that's the value of of what we do and and, and it does feel like we live in a time we live in a time where thinking is besieged, you know, we live in a time of mm. false certainties. You know, I, I think I've always, you know, wanted to try and live a, a way that follows or is animated by a, a, a sense of doubt, a sense of mm. doubt, to live with doubt in the service of understanding. Mm. I think that's the kind of way I, I've tried to to practice the craft of, of scholarship, you know, and mm-hmm. to, to not, I mean, it feels like to me that those qualities and they're harder to they're harder to sustain given the forces that bear down on us, um, either institutionally or in terms of the, th- how public thinking operates in our time. But but uh, you know, I, I still feel very strongly about valuing that in others and trying to to you know inhabit that sensibility as as best I can. Mm. Mm. And I think I think that you know the complexity cuts both ways in the sense that I feel like something that I'm really grateful to have got a handle on and learned as I've got older and maybe a bit less self-righteously angry <laughs> and from 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 people like yourself Les is you know to try and understand and cursed objects has helped me do this working with Kasha too like to try and to try and understand the complexity in well and specifically in these objects that's by which I mean if someone's wearing 
a House of Catford t-shirt that I think is a bit corny and maybe it was produced as part of a plan to regenerate and gentrify an area and that's something I I would dislike to happen I wouldn't like to happen that they they could have invested that t-shirt with their own meaning that they you know mm. that I've, I've, mm. what I feel like what I've learned as I've got older is to try and be more generous in spirit towards the 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 way that uh people make particular decisions and if someone's chosen to wear that t-shirt and they've only arrived in the and they're a middle class person say who's arrived in the borough yesterday that doesn't mean they're satan it might it might it might be it might be something entirely different they're celebrating that it's nothing to do with property developers um <laughs> yeah <laughs> put, let's hope not let's hope do you, not <laughs> do you know what i mean i mean even our cursed objects can be blessed i think is what, what i'm trying to say yeah no i just think that's right i think it's something that's also come out of our talk hasn't it i mean i think that's absolutely right i hadn't thought of it that way before but i think that's absolutely right you know people make mistakes <laughs> people make mistakes we make mistakes you know we're I think that's one of the things that I've, I've, I've often thought of as the value of the kinds of work that we do in our different ways is, is on, on the one hand to, 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 to live with that sense of uncertainty about things mm. and to be open to surprise yeah. as a bearing in life itself, you know, not just a, a way to, to do a research project or write a piece of journalism, but, mm. but to, as, as a sort of disposition, a way of holding yes. to the world. Um, and, and I became a little bit less uh, defensive about that um, in the in the 2000s, you know, and it's, it's why I ended up writing this book, which I thought people would laugh about at me initially, called The Art of Listening, you know, mm-hmm. that we live in a culture that, that speaks too quickly, listens to, um, doesn't listen carefully enough, I should say. So I, I think I, beca- I, I became a bit more um, clear in my own um mind and thinking about well what is it it's all very well to to critique the world it's all very well to live right self-righteously in relation to the fingering of the curse you know pointing the finger mm. of, of the cursed thing but but also um how about you know thinking about an, an attentiveness to the world that could be on the one hand make judgments and also on the other hand stay uh, open to the the, the joy and and the enchantment in the world too, mm. even in the darkest of times. Mm-hmm. So does that mean we've finally settled on a name which is ambivalent objects? Is that the new? I don't think you need any other names, Chrissy. I think you've got you've got pretty brilliant names in my mind. Um, so I don't think you. Need. Yeah, let's 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 stop rebranding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You have your brand, Keith. There's one thing we've learned. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think we could continue talking for many hours um, and uh, I hope we've encouraged you to talk and listen um, for many hours more as well about these subjects and many others. Uh, we just want to, Cash and I both want to thank Les so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure having this yeah, conversation. Yeah, it's been amazing. Thank uh, you, Les. Uh, well, the joy and the pleasure is <laughs> is mine too. I mean, uh, and all power to you, really. I, mean, I just... I just think what you're doing is is wonderful. Very kind of you to say. Um, we wish you all the best in, in Glasgow, but yeah, you're you're not going that far. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I hope you'll keep keep us posted on on your adventures in a completely new place. Um, mm. And um, yeah, otherwise, uh, thanks everybody to, for listening. Uh, follow Les's advice and, and listen listen a bit more carefully. <laughs> it's something we, we, we all need to remind ourselves to do. 
Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks so thanks much. So much. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.